0: Please note that this episode contains some emotional and sometimes disturbing discussions about infant mortality. This may not be suitable for all listeners. And so from that point, I suppose
1: you're a grown-up because you know that people disappear. From that point, I'm scared that people will leave, though I didn't realise that for a long time.
0: This is How Did We Get Here with me, Claudia Winkleman, and my fantastic friend, clinical psychologist, Professor Tanya Byron. Each episode, we look at some of the difficulties people are facing in their daily lives. Tan talks to our guest and I listen in to try and understand what has unfolded. And then I'll ask maybe for some clarification on some of the issues that have arisen. Please do forgive us if there are any sound glitches or any background noises, because we are, of course, recording this from our respective homes. This time, we meet Maya, who is married with five children. When Maya was 11, she tried to resuscitate her baby brother, who died of cot death. Occasionally, Maya is triggered and the memory of what happened returns to her. Maya gets very upset when she can't fix things and wonders whether it's a result of that early tragedy she's only just starting to realise that she has suffered grief in her life. It's just completely different from what I've been thinking and hiding from and scared of for
1: the last 30 years now.
0: Let's go and meet Maya. Maya, thank you so much for taking part. You're welcome. Tell me why you're why you're here. I wanted to just really work out when things became
1: hard in my life, why I would go back to a place where something happened when I was a young girl I'm trying to work out how it's how it's formed me I know we all have experiences that that form us um, but I want to really understand how much that's fed into my personality and what I can do about that going going forward so I can be better I think and more
0: Even, I would say. Even would be excellent. that's it. Uh, Tell me about your current situation, who you live with and your family, and then we'll go back to, as you just mentioned, something that happened to you when you were a little girl.
1: I live with my husband. I have five children. My eldest is 20 and he's in Russia at the moment, randomly. So I have four left in the house. So I have an 18-year-old trying to do A-levels. Then the other three go down to, to 10. So there's a lot of homeschooling going on at the minute and different laptops and screens and trying to juggle all four of them, you know.
0: Tell me what happened when you were a little girl.
1: So when I was 11, my, my parents went away for the night for my, to celebrate my dad's birthday. And um, my sister ran in and um, said, Christopher's not breathing. So Christopher was my four month old little brother And so I went in to his bedroom and um, picked him up and he was um, floppy. I put him on the bed. There was a cot and there was a bed in there. I tried to resuscitate him. So it's not a nice thing to have to remember.
0: I'm so sorry.
1: I was just 11 and um, I, I couldn't do anything. My sister had rung for an ambulance, but they never found us. We had we had a, a, a name for the house. And that's what they say, don't they? For emergencies, you need a number because they can't find your house if you just have a name. And it, it was called um, Burley, which sounded like Birkby, which is nearby oh, where I live. And um, so the, the ambulance went there and they couldn't find him. And I just remember my... I think my granddad turned up and they took him. The poor the poor um, babysitter, can you imagine? I think she was only about 14 or 15. She was only a little bit older. And then we were taken to my grandparents' house and the only thing I remember is being in my aunt's bed and she was saying, it'll be fine. We were kind of laughing. And then we got up because my parents came and as soon as they walked in, I I knew. And so from that point, I suppose... You're a grown-up because you know that people disappear. From that point, I'm scared that people will leave, though I didn't realise that for a long time. From then on, if my husband's 10 minutes late, I'm thinking he's dead in a ditch. The only thing that's a consequence of it, I can't watch first aid. Yeah. You know, sometimes when at school or, or in groups, you'll do first aid. Sorry. Or on the television. There's a point about that. I think on television, once I heard how you should be careful with babies because you can break their ribs. And so from that point, I actually thought I'd- No, I actually thought that I might have killed it. You didn't. Which is something to carry, isn't it? Like that was, I remember that thought and I remember burying it as this really scary thought. Like, oh my gosh, I am really glad. And it came each child that I had, it cemented it more that I have those memories and not my mom. Yeah, Because can you imagine? And I can't imagine having those images of trying to save my own child.
0: It was bad enough that it was my brother. You are also a mother to, I know, both uh, sons and daughters. And you will have also worked out how young 11 is.
1: And that was what I was just going to say. My daughter, she's 12 now, but at the time when she was 11, some, it hit me like a ton of bricks, that point of... No, I just, I protected my mom. I think part of the reason it came up, I started to listen to a podcast about grief Mm -hmm. and I thought to myself, I haven't really lost anyone. I don't know why I'm listening to this. It was just because I I liked the host and I thought maybe I'll be able to help people who are going through grief. You know, if I listen to it, I'll be be able to be more helpful. I'm always trying to learn things. And the more I listened, the more I just was, was amazed at how similar I was to some of the people on there. And I realised, oh, <laughs> a lot of those things come from, come from that event and maybe it was some trauma that
0: I haven't addressed, you know. Well, what happened to you and your whole family was deeply traumatic. Just tell me where you are in your family. Were you the eldest? Yeah. And so your sister came to find you? So I was 11 and
1: she will have been... Let me think about the timing. Yes, she was 10. And do you talk about it with her? I'm just interested maybe because I, it started to come up when we talked about it and I asked her about her experience. My parents didn't talk about him. I wondered about that and something happened last year that meant they talked about it a little bit. My cousin, who's just a little bit younger than me, died by suicide last summer. Oh, sorry. And... So my dad's brother, my uncle, and his wife, they had to come and quarantine, you know, before the funeral. And of course, they were talking about the loss of their child and asking my parents about it, and it it brought all that back for them. It was difficult to see my mum at the funeral upset. I think it opened up. Yes. It made me worried, again, that I'd caused her pain. You know, when I saw her upset?
0: It's so silly, I understand it's not very rational. No, you're Um, just so kind, but I am so pleased you are going to talk to Tanya today. She's going to look after you. You're going to be fine. So I will leave. I'm going to talk to you at the end, and I leave you in her hands. But thank you, Maya. Thank you. Okay. thank you, Claudia. Nice to
1: talk to you.
2: You get it. Logically, you just can't understand why emotionally it still has the effect on you that it does that's the impression that i i get from listening to you i think i'm always just that little girl trying to fix it and i did i didn't i didn't fix it
1: that's difficult i think from that point i was um i was not a little girl anymore and i had to take care of my parents it, it was particularly difficult for my mom and possibly my dad who knows what goes on privately? He seemed to to be able to put it on a shelf. And, um, you know, I think I just tried quite hard to be pretty good. <laughs> it's had to come out. I think I just pushed it down in those teenage years. Mm-hmm. And then when I had my children, I, I specifically remember making a conscious choice, a very, very conscious choice to not worry about my children breathing when they were babies.
2: That must have been incredibly difficult for you.
1: I don't think I could have that in my mind and look after my children. I don't think. Um, I was very young when I had my first, I was only 21. And after after my brother that died, my parents went on to have another baby. And his due date was the date of the the anniversary of his death. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Going to going to say, you know, what's your due date? And it's the date that your baby's just Just died. And so they brought him two weeks earlier than the date. And so my mum decided to have a monitor to be able to tell if he stopped breathing. In those days, it would have had things attached, you know, kind of sticky things to this Mm -hmm. machine.
0: Mm.
1: And he was a robust little guy. And as he got older, he would pull them off. And so this alarm would go off. I cannot tell you how distressing that was. to hear an alarm go off and to run into the same room that my other brother had died in.
2: That's re-traumatising, isn't it? Every time it happens, you would have gone in. You would have retraced your steps. You would have run to the the bed or the the cot. You would, I mean, that must have been absolutely horrific for you. Probably more for my mum as well, right? Absolutely, of course. But, I mean, the person who went in and found Christopher floppy which is how you described it to claude the person who picked him up and tried to resuscitate him was a child and that child was you it's like a living flashback it's it's actually constant trauma endlessly so at the age of 11 you had to become the parental child you had to be the child that was good and made sure your parents were okay and You also had to keep one ear out for whether your next brother was going to perhaps have problems at night. So you were constantly hypervigilant. This level of anxiety probably became your normal. I'm curious about how much that anxiety continues to play itself out in your adult life. I I did
1: an English literature degree and now I, I mostly read nonfiction because I feel like I need to be learning something
2: so you have to be productive all the time every minute
1: yes quite often if I watch TV if I feel really guilty and so often I will iron whilst I do it or I will make something
2: and and you said you know time is a big issue for me I don't want to waste time but I suppose you more than most people from a very young age are acutely aware of the fragility of life that we're all mortal it can come. At any time, when you least expect it. So I wonder whether that also compels you to pack your days, feel like you have to get on with things, do things. I mean, you must be absolutely exhausted. How do you keep it all going? It's just a really strong drive to be better. I find it
1: hard if I don't do something very well. And it's not not things like cooking or whatever, but it's relationships, so if I, if I feel like I have failed in, in relationships, I find it particularly difficult. I put a big wall around my heart because I'm scared of being vulnerable because it's painful, isn't it?
2: And you're scared of loss. We can mitigate the pain of loss if we don't allow ourselves to get too close to people.
1: That's it, and after I'd had my first two boys, I miscarried it, and I was 17 weeks, so I had to give birth it was a little boy (laughs) and it was not nice they sent me home they couldn't do it straight away so I had to go home for a couple of days that that was very uncomfortable
2: so sorry just to be clear so you were at home for two days with your pregnancy knowing that the baby was had died yeah that must have been horrendous horrendous for you
1: it was not very pleasant And the midwife for my closure was saying, you need to look at the baby to to have closure. And I did not want to look at the baby. And I didn't. Mm. And I'm really glad about that. I think it would have brought back those memories. And I was only in my mid-twenties at the time. I didn't think I was ready to look at it all and understand it all. This little boy,
2: does he have a name?
1: No, because I... I mean, I, I hesitated to say baby to you because I usually would say it. I, I don't think I can grieve for a baby. I have, I had to just think, and that's why I didn't look. After that pregnancy, it was worrying to go for scans for the for my other children. Mm. It's not logical, but when I would get past that seventeen weeks, I would calm down a little bit.
2: Of course, you know, you talked to Claude earlier about when your daughter became eleven and how triggering that was. You talked about when your youngest boy, you talked about when he was four months old and him being the fifth child like Christopher was. It is perfectly normal that these anniversaries, I mean, you've talked about how the child that came after your brother Christopher was due on the anniversary of his death. I mean, you can see how if there have been traumatic life experiences that have never been fully emotionally processed they just sit there and they get triggered and I suppose the challenge for you losing your third pregnancy the challenge for you is it's just it's another confirmation of the risk of life you don't want to look at it you call the baby it the baby doesn't have a name I can understand why but I wonder whether there is something around that experience for you that still needs to be processed as well? Just a year after
1: the miscarriage, um, I pulled into my cul-de-sac and there was an almighty scream and I thought, someone has been murdered or they're giving birth. You know, it was that kind of guttural scream. And I went and knocked on on my neighbour's door and um, she said, come in. And she was sat there in the downstairs toilet with her two-year-old looking... Pretty traumatized with a baby. She just had a baby on the toilet. Oh my goodness! And there was no one there. So, so she had. She just has back pain. So she didn't realize she was in labor until she was pushing. And so I, I'm, I'm scrambling to ring an ambulance and to help. And and the the baby was a funny color. I suppose because the cord had not been cut yet. Mm. So I I rang from an ambulance and they're telling me, they're saying, get a towel and get the placenta out of the toilet and I was trying to help this lady and it all happened very quickly and I will admit I was I was flapping, I was horrendous. And then the, the medics came in and I think um, they all took over. And I just went back to my house and put my shopping away. It was so strange, but for the rest of the day I had this hideous feeling really worried that I'd been so rubbish and that I'd flapped so badly that something would have happened to her baby. Her husband came later that night with some flowers and chocolates, I think, to say thank you. I don't know if I directly said it, but I just wanted to say, is the baby okay? But did not feel good about being rewarded for for flapping under difficult circumstances, you know?
2: It feels like you still carry the guilt And the shame of your sense when you are 11 that you could have done better. Oh, I'm sorry. I can see you're really distraught. I'm so sorry. Maya, I feel that the the guilt and shame then gets played out through this sort of almost these manic defences you have. What I mean by manic defences is this constant need to be productive, having to learn, never waste time, always be on the go. This need for productivity, this need to fix things, manage things, support people. But whenever you do something heroic, like run into your neighbor's house and find her on the toilet, having just given birth, all you can do is decide that it just wasn't good enough. And I think that's because you still haven't allowed yourself to forgive yourself for what you perceive was the major catastrophic experience you perceive in terms of your inability to save Christopher's life. You've been trying to make up for that ever since. Um, Can I just stop you there? So,
0: manic defensives, I mean, what was so extraordinary? Here's a woman with five children, still young, totally together, who doesn't stop, like she doesn't even read fiction because she thinks that's too much of a treat, too much of a waste of time. And you said something about, well, yes, you've got manic defensives. What is that?
2: It's a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic uh, concept. So it's it's about how we find ways to cope with our underlying issues, if you like to put it very, very simply. And, and fundamentally, you know, this idea of manic defenses comes from this sense of the more busy I am, the more productive mm-hmm. I am, the less I have to think about, or I risk the thoughts and images of trauma or things I don't want to think about coming into my head. And also it's about control. I mean, a lot of us can relate to this, you know, in the sense totally. that when life feels chaotic, you know, for some people, you tidy out that cupboard. You, you know, you just do stuff. I bake. Just to, you, I know you bake. I know All you the time. because I <laughs> I mean, if, if, I, it. if it gets a lot, suddenly <laughs> yeah.
0: my husband will go, something up. And I go, Why? "Exactly." And he goes, you've got a carrot cake and you're now whipping up brownies. What's going on? It,
2: that's where relationships are very strong when we know each other in the sense that we can see in each other's behaviour what we're struggling with. And I think with Maya, you can see, you know, she's always busy. Obviously, again, getting back to breath, if I sit still, if I read a beautiful novel, if I listen to some music, if I go for a walk and I'm not listening to a history podcast or learning Mm. a language, I'm just in the moment, that sense of being mindful in the moment can be very threatening for people who experience flashbacks or other forms of trauma memory because there's that sense of an empty space will be filled with something. And if it's filled with what I think it's gonna be filled with, I'm gonna avoid that at all costs. So I'm gonna keep busy.
0: How extraordinary.
2: To me, you seem to be struggling with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's something that I could help you understand so we can work out how you can have the support that you need. I'd say 30 years a bit too late, but nevertheless, (laughs) the support you need to be able to separate these horrendous traumas from who you are and how you live your life constantly trying to be productive, perfectionist and fix and control things?
1: With my children, I made a conscious decision. I, I said to myself, you would have to be there the very second they stopped breathing. It's impossible. So you will not hover over them and check on them if they're breathing. And I, I told myself that when I had my first son and that seemed to do the job really well. With my fifth son, he got a bit chesty at one point. And so the doctor gave me... Is it a nebulizer? Is that the right word? I don't know. It was a strange, I suppose, because he wouldn't be able to breathe in a puff from a a usual... So like a little
2: mask thing you put over for him to
1: breathe?
2: Oh, you're grimacing and you look... Oh, tell me what's happened there. Because I said mask and I sort of mimicked putting my hand over my face while we were talking... You've, it was so difficult, and yeah. that's what I had
1: to do. I had to hold a mask o- over his face for ten seconds, and I think it's the closest I've ever come to having a panic attack. I'm not surprised. I just could not, and I didn't. I didn't know why at that point. Um, this was ten years ago. He's ten now. That of course it was bringing back some repressed memories of of, of doing a similar thing to my brother. So strange with all the
2: babies. I mean just why why? Why with all the babies? Because it
3: keeps I suppose it prodding. Just stands
2: out. Well it keeps prodding mm. at the same wound as well, doesn't it? Plus then when your youngest, who's also the same in birth order and gender as Christopher was, he then required you to put a mask over his face. Which I mean again, when I say it I can see it. you I mean you've literally had a physiological response, haven't you? Just describe to me what you're feeling now.
1: I don't know if I can. It's fairly horrifying. It's just, it's, my whole body feels revulsion.
2: Mm-hmm. Keep talking.
1: At having, to, at having to hold that down on his face.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I don't, I don't know why. Maybe that's because it's associated with going on his face and not bringing back memories of me actually trying to make Christopher breathe again. So I suppose it gets a bit mixed up, doesn't it?
2: But it is all fundamentally about breath, isn't it? It's about breathing. I'm always chasing my tail. I'm always trying to, to buy myself some time. And that's why I'm saying I think it's complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It's multiple events that happen regularly enough. When they happen, they trigger in you a significant feeling of panic fear just completely overwhelmed I'm just wondering because there's a lot to process and we need to take a break I think would it be helpful for you to think a little bit about one aspect of this which could be think about you as an 11 year old you could write a letter to your 11 year old self say just want to tell you what I think I've worked out a kind letter. The other thing I want you to think about is whether or not as part of this process it might be important to look a little bit more at your third child who you lost and whether actually you need to mark that in some way to be able to say goodbye to him because I feel he still sits somewhere. How do you feel about this if we have a sort of 15, 20 minute break? Yeah, please that's don't fine. do the ironing while you're doing it, right?
0: <laughs> You've mentioned PTSD before, but you said that hers was something else. Can you explain? C PTSD.
2: PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is is generally when there's been a single event, some horrible trauma, and after the sort of few weeks of shock have passed, what is left isn't something that feels processed as an autobiographical memory, but it keeps repeating itself through flashbacks and intense um, experiences of anxiety that can be triggered in in a variety of ways, often very random. CPTSD is when it becomes more complex and that's generally because it is due to uh, repeated trauma. The reason I mention this with Maya is because obviously she had the awful experience at the age of 11 when she was trying to resuscitate her brother who I think had already died. But then we move on through her life and we see other events linked to quite similar issues. You just see these repeated trauma that almost layer one on top of each other. If the original trauma hasn't been really processed, and obviously from what she's described to us, it wasn't fully discussed in the family. She wasn't really given support. You know, she she just has this unprocessed single event when she was 11 with her brother dying. It just layers and layers and layers, and you can see her response to that being very sort of trauma-informed, if you like.
0: Um, I know this is a podcast, so I don't want to annoy anyone, but what was extraordinary to see was Myers. I want to use the word sort of violent recoil when you talk to her about the mask. I'm not exaggerating, yes. am I?
2: As soon as we mentioned something very specific, so in, in her case it's placing the mask over her child's face to help him breathe um, she had a physical Mm. as well as an emotional reaction and we both saw that it's like a flashback you know you could see she was there in the room with her baby putting the mask over his face and of course that has such narrative trauma connections to the issue of of what happened when she was 11 and her little baby brother breath and oxygen oxygen and babies and, you know, not breathing and all that is just so traumatic for her.
0: Finally, I just want to ask you this. I think people will find it very interesting about what brings to light. The fact that she contacted us uh, and knew she had to talk is her own 11-year-old daughter. And she suddenly looked at her and realised, I was that age. Does that often happen with CPTSD? Yeah, that's really common.
2: You know, I see it a lot in people who have been sexually abused as children when you know and and have done a lot of work on it and um, but then when their child of generally of the same gender becomes the age they were when they experienced you know th- th- the horrific abuse that they experienced as children um it can really really stir things up again because you know there's this idea of projective identification you know you identify with another being another person and you know you have this sense of sort of projection around onto them yeah there can be that sort of moment where a child one's child hits the age that one was when there was a particular really traumatic incident and suddenly that becomes real again
0: okay well let's get my back in
2: tasks if you like one was you were gonna try and make sense of what you and I had talked about by writing a letter to that 11 year old girl that you were and I also asked about your third child who I felt you hadn't quite fully said goodbye to him and maybe we could start with that if if that's okay and then we'll we'll move on to your letter if if that's all right okay I wish I'd been able to
1: take his body with me. Is that so strange?
2: No, not at all. Not at all strange.
1: Um, I think that was the hardest thing, not taking anything home because I'd done it twice before, you know. And it's a brilliant feeling, isn't it, when you bring your baby home. Mm. And like, I got a card through the post that told me when they had cremated the baby. And um, that was really upsetting
2: really upsetting in this part of our conversation you're saying the baby when you first talked to me about it earlier you called you said it we've moving on narratively to a a little person who has meaning not the baby your baby would he have had a name did you know have you ever thought of him in terms of a name no because I
1: suppose that that was what I was going to the scan to find out what what sex it was and that would have come then after Mm -hmm. it had a knock-on effect I really really tried to not be attached to my third pregnancy and it's impossible it's impossible how do you not love I, I mean I I love them when even just when they're growing and they're moving there's just this insane connection isn't there
2: absolutely something
1: that you've created and that's inside you and I couldn't I couldn't not love her and um I did quite settle down once I
2: found out it was a girl. It makes huge sense that you calmed down because you've lost two boy babies now in your life. I've never added
1: my brother into being relieved that she was a girl. I've never thought about that before.
2: In terms of my sense that this is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, repeated trauma, over a number of years in various guises. In all of that, I wonder whether therefore you can see why I feel that somehow marking the passing of your third baby, maybe there needs to be something more there for you, something maybe symbolic, so you can say goodbye to him. What do you think about that as a, as a thought in terms of part of your healing? I feel sad again. I feel sad that I didn't let myself just grieve a little bit. You couldn't then. You can now because you've bravely decided it's time to look at this and it's never too late. How do I do that retrospective grieving or soothing? How, how does that work? The way you do that is to find a relationship with someone who is trained and is a specialist in trauma-informed therapy where you can grieve for your brother, for your third pregnancy. And I think actually, most fundamentally, for your 11-year-old self because- I was just going to say that. (laughs) You lost your childhood that day. I asked my
1: dad, did you ever see a post-mortem but he said he didn't think there was one, and I was really, really disappointed because it, it felt like that could be that could help if it said that, that what the cause of death was. And he said the doctor came around the day after. He asked me exactly what happened, or maybe my sister, because I honestly I cannot remember this. And the doctor had said, "You did so brilliantly. You did everything right. you did everything that you could. That was great." And I just was so shocked and I just wished that I could have remembered that and internalised it somehow because I certainly have not remembered and did not think that subsequently.
2: You were told that once, the day after the most shocking, horrific experience of your young life. Therefore, you wouldn't have processed it, therefore you didn't remember it. I don't wish to sound critical of your parents, but fundamentally... You should have had that said to you many, many times in many different ways over many years. You should have been put into a therapeutic environment where you would have had other people helping you at the age of 11, 12, 13, however long it took. One conversation the day after you tried to revive your four-month-old brother who had died in a cot death is not going to hit the mark, you've been left all these years wondering whether you killed your brother. And even now I see you, you put your head down and you weep and you haven't heard that enough. You haven't had the chance to, for that 11 year old part of you to really process that she was incredible and did the best she could. And she did not cause the horrible horrific loss of her brother she tried her best to help him so you wrote to her in our break
1: yeah it was hard
2: well, of course it is because you're only just beginning to look at it do you feel able to
1: to read i can but it's short but this is what i could manage and i've put dear maya <laughs> I'm so sorry this happened to you. There was nothing you could have done and it was brave of you to walk into that room. You may not think you've been affected by this yet, but let me tell you that you don't have to prove yourself. You are good enough as you are. You can't save everybody and fix everything. Just being there is enough. And then I wanted to put that you did a good job and you did your best, by I just... I couldn't quite get there yet. OK. So I just finished it with, I will look after you, everything will be OK. And that was the best I
2: could do. And that was amazing. How are you going to look after that part of yourself?
1: I suppose it might help just even to to read that over as a kind of affirmation, you know, just reminding myself that I tried just to, to be a bit kinder to to her.
2: Kind of, in what way, do you think? Do you mean? I suppose partly it's holding her and myself to a really,
1: really high standard to, to expect that I could have fixed that. I could have done any better.
2: I just really, really hope I didn't hurt him. That bit is tricky. It is tricky. As you remember it now, are you seeing yourself there? Yeah, I'm right in the room. And can you see him? I can see him. And he was floppy, you you said to me earlier. I think he was floppy when I picked him up and laid him on the bed. And he wasn't responsive? No. Can you remember the color of his face? I think it was just strange, you know, not... Not pink? No. So not oxygenated?
1: I don't think so. It's more the detail of the things coming out of his nose, you know?
2: You able to dis- describe what you mean by that? Sick, I think. So there was vomit there. So it makes me wonder whether he had as- asphyxiated on his vomit. That the vomit was there, and as you pressed, it was coming out of his coming nose. out of his nose. Yeah. My instinct is, Maya, that he was not alive when you found him. My instinct is that you did the right thing but sadly not at the right time because I. my sense is that he, he'd already gone. My clinical instinct is, and I think it echoes what the GP said to you the next day, there was nothing you could have done, you were so brave to try.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to, to change it. It's just completely different from what I've been thinking and hiding from and scared of for the last I mean it's 30 years now
2: 30 years
1: I hope I can move forward and not be completely defined by it in the ways that are that are negative because I think there's good that can come out of everything and hopefully that that has a knock-on effect with the pressure that it that I take on to fix everything Mm
2: hmm But also, we all all have to recognise that some things can't be fixed. And sometimes things can be fixed, but we may not be that person. And sometimes things don't need to be fixed. We've just got to learn to live with whatever it is that is a bit difficult, uncomfortable, distressing. And feel confident that that will pass. Do you know what I've noticed while we've been talking in this second half... The sun has started shining behind you. Can you see? Oh, yeah. There's blue sky. Some people listening to me might think this is really cheesy, but I'm all for symbolic things around us when we're grappling with such difficult and painful issues. It did start with rain this morning. <laughs> yeah. But we've moved from rain into blue skies and sunshine. But maybe something quite hopeful in terms of our discussion. It is just really helpful to... To be seen.
1: I think you understand me and understand me but don't judge me for being frenetic <laughs> and trying to save everything. I think that's kind and helpful and soothing. So thank you
2: for that. I think you're fantastic. You don't have to try so hard. It's really kind. I hope it's true. Oh, so you're saying maybe I might be wrong. How dare you? (laughs) That's your inner voice. It is true. And what I want to say to you is accept the kindness as you see it, but make it your own. Please, please, please be kind to yourself. And that starts with forgiving yourself for something that you didn't actually ever do. I will work really hard at that. I think it might take some time, but... I think you've done a ton of ton with me today. Yeah.
0: When we first chatted, I said, "Why are you here?" And you said, "I'd like to feel a bit more even." Huh. But do you think, or oh, maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm on my way to feeling a bit more even?
1: It's almost let it out into the light, isn't it? It's not something shameful anymore that I have to cover up and go, oh, well, this happened, but it wasn't that bad, so I'll just cover it up again. And so that feels like a beautiful gift, actually, Um, and will definitely help me on my way, and I hope that in the future I can just, yeah, hold on to that and not go back to, no, I've got to put it away and I'm ashamed. When I
0: say goodbye in five minutes, is your husband in the house?
1: He's not, no. No.
0: I feel like you know when you would talk to us from the beginning, it's just there. But because you've painted seventeen cupboards, changed the water supplier, <laughs> and you have five children, and you're homeschooling them, and you're cooking three meals a day, you're basically living in your cutlery drawer, keeping the show on the road. Don't worry, Mum can do it. I would like you to unravel with him a bit. I'm going to send you a list of novels you might. Be at, <laughs> but when you are ready, fiction. Oh my goodness, forget. <laughs> Fiction. You are ready. You studied English literature. You are ready for a rip-roaring read <laughs> to be carried somewhere else. Don't worry about learning. You have learned enough. <laughs> but please stay in touch with us. And I'm so grateful again. And I just wanted to say that thing at the end. It's enormous. That's what we've learned. All of us doing this podcast, sometimes enormous things happen. And it needs an enormous light on it and for the healing to begin does that make any sense? yeah
1: thank you so much you've been very kind
0: no you're fantastic thank you so much I know we always do this but I just think we should an enormous thank you to
2: Maya she's going to be
0: all right isn't she
2: well the thing is she is all right I think that's yeah. the most important thing she of course she will be Great. And I'm really pleased, actually, that the conversation with Maya today has just enabled her to remove the fear and look at these traumatic events in her life from a different perspective and be able to settle the complex post-traumatic stress disorder responses she has, enough for them to become autobiographical memories, but not to remain having this chokehold around her in the, the way they still sometimes do. Maya wrote a letter.
0: I love, you know, I love it when somebody writes a letter. I think she's on the path.
2: How do you make sense of what feels so overwhelming to you at the moment? And what? And, and once we've made sense of something, already we're well on the way to being able to process whatever it is that has been overwhelming us for so many years. So yeah, it, today felt like a day where I was able to do what I love doing with someone who who really wanted it. And I think will really benefit from it. So good day for me, definitely.
0: Thank you very much. I'd love to pretend that we were gonna go off and run through a field, but we're not. Uh, You're no, in your but, house, I'm in mine.
2: But you know what I would say, Claude, is with your manic defences, if there are a few hundred brownies kicking around, a small delivery of baked goods onto my doorstep would not be-
0: No problemo. A problem. My son has his university interview. There are 300 <laughs> baked goods downstairs. <laughs> We're not even having savoury for lunch. We're just having... Right, can you pass me the lemon drizzle? Well, any left. You know where I live. I'm sending. (laughs) Bye, Tom. Bye. As discussed, we've passed on some useful contacts and information to Maya, some of which you will find in the programme notes of this episode. If you like this podcast, please do share it, subscribe to get new episodes, comment, give us a five-star review if you... You liked it. It helps us to keep making these. If you're interested in taking part in How Did We Get Here, please email with your issue to how at something else.com. That's how, H-O-W, at something else without the G, dot com. Next time we meet Annie. Up until this morning, I
2: would have probably, if
0: I'm being
1: really honest, I would have classed him just as a bad person.
0: Oh is he i don't know this podcast was made by the team at something else the sound and mix engineer is josh gibbs the assistant producer is grace laker the producer is selena reen and the executive producers are claire Solon and chris skinner with additional production from steve ackerman thank you so much for listening